you guys are doing well today. If you have your Bibles, get them open to 2 Timothy. There's a reason we played a video about 2 Timothy, because that's what we're studying, all right? So 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you do not have a Bible, there's a black one in seatbacks in front of you. Grab it and get to page 1055, and you'll be with us on that. I want to thank each and every one of you for being here today, and thank all of you who join us online. And can, can you, before we get into this, can you join me in thanking the praise team this morning? They, Brandon and Grace are, uh, have been with the, our teens. Uh, I think 25 teens ended up going to uh, their, their sort of late winter, early spring retreat at, at Twin Lakes Conference. And so they've been there since Friday night. They'll get back later today, um, and they're having a good time there. E- even Pastor Adam went over and did a couple of sessions with them yesterday. And so they've had a full weekend. So uh, for Zach and Zach and Maggie and uh, Nate and Nick stepping in, we really appreciate that. And, and they did a wonderful job. And so uh, we're grateful uh, for that. And I'm going to ask that you join me. In a word of prayer as we uh, launch into this time. So, Father, we are incredibly thankful uh, for each and every person who's here. Uh, we're incredibly thankful for how you've already met us this morning in a, a combined communion service and in a chance to, to fellowship, a chance to, uh, to, to prayerfully consider elder candidates and to hear about what you're doing in the building project, what you're doing in Paleywala, um, and then the chance to, to worship you, Lord, that you have uh, showed up once again as you do every time. And uh, as we look to your word that, that tells us of your faithfulness, God, I pray that you would be the one who illuminates uh, what you want illuminated today. Uh, you'd be the one who speaks loudest and clearest, um, that we would respond humbly to you and you'd get the glory from all this. And we pray this all in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, during sort of what I would consider the height of the uh, frenzy around COVID, uh, I had a, a meeting over Zoom. All right, many of you probably went through this process, and, and Zoom all of a sudden became a thing that everybody knows what it is. We have these uh, video chats with other people, and uh, this was a conference that I was originally supposed to be a part of, but then said they went online and did virtual, and so uh, this was one of the breakouts, and, and so not everybody in this call knew each other. And so the guy running the Zoom call decided he was going to have people introduce himself, and he called on one guy first, and I don't remember his name now. We'll just call him Bill, all right? And so Bill uh, starts into his introduction, and he's like, well, the first thing uh, that you need, I, th- I think the first thing, the most important thing people need to know about me is that I love Jesus, and I'm a follower of his, and one of the things I, I feel inc- uh, particularly called to by the Lord is just to invest in pastors, right, just, to, just to pour into them and encourage them and, and make their lives a little bit easier, and I kind of set up in my chair, I was like, hmm, Bill might be somebody I need to get to know, right? And then he just kept talking, and he said, he said his age, and I was like, ooh, he's the same age I am. And then he said, you know, another thing, maybe uh, I'm a big sports fan, uh, probably uh, love watching football, uh, but I grew up in northern Illinois, Bill said, and so I'm, I'm, I'm a big Cubs fan. All right, at this point, I'm just sitting up in my seat. I'm like, what's going on here, right? And then he kept talking, because Bill apparently likes talking about himself, right? And he, he said, you can probably see from some of the stuff behind me, uh, he said, you can see from some of the stuff behind me that I'm, I'm a big fan of the show, The Office, and I think it's hilarious. And at this point, I'm like, all right, I'm getting pranked. Okay, you know, like identity theft is not a joke, Jim, right? And, and, it's, and so um, it's just like, what is happening, you know? And, and he finally wraps it up, and maybe the guy running the call saw, like, my increasing interest, because he's like, well, let's go to Brett next. And when the first thing that came out of my mouth was, well, I need to let you know that Bill and I just became best friends. <laughs> but here's the problem. You laughed at that because you know what I know. Bill and no one else in the call knew what I knew. 
Bill didn't know me. He can't read my thoughts. He's just speaking into a webcam, right? And so he had no idea that all his interests matched mine, that all his passions asked mine, that, that his age was the same as mine, all those things. He has no idea. So my comment to him came across as confusing at best and super creepy and uncomfortable at worst, right? <laughs> so I can tell you, uh, Bill and I did not become best friends, right? Uh, he made no effort to contact me after. There's at least one pastor that he has no interest in investing in, right? Which is a shame because my best friend is out there somewhere and he just thinks I'm a weirdo creep, right? But we do this, right? We, 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 in conversations, we try to quickly figure out if do we have connection points with these other human beings? Or do I have anything in common with this person? Is there anything that we can chat about or, or go deeper on? Or is there any sort of uh, experiences that we can share moving forward? But it begs the question, right? What is the most important thing about a person? What is the single most important thing about a person? Because it's not what their interests are. It's not even what you have in common with them. It's not their status. It's not their employment. It's not their race. It's not their gender. It's not any of that. Because there's one thing about you this morning that shapes you in more ways than you realize. There's one thing about you that dramatically impacts your life, often in unspoken ways, but in all the most important ways. Eddie Tozer wrote about this and he, when he writes, what you think about God is the single most important thing about you. What you think about God is the single most important thing about you. Because his argument is that your view of God shapes every decision that you make. Your view of God shapes the relationships that you have. Your view of God shapes your emotional and spiritual health. Your view of God shapes your eternal destination. And the Lord knew this, right? That's why he gives us the Bible. Right, the Bible, we need to make sure. Have you ever heard somebody say the Bible is basic instructions before leaving earth? That's not what it is, okay? The Bible is God revealing himself to us. And so the most important question to ask when you read the Bible is what is this teaching me about God? And we see this pattern in this letter that we've been studying, Paul's letter to Timothy. We've been in 2 Timothy all year. In the last several weeks, we've been looking at chapter 2, which is, which is a call to endurance, Paul wants Timothy to endure. Paul wants Timothy to run his full race, to stay in the fight till the very end, even long after Paul's gone. And Paul knows that one of our best tools for endurance is having a proper view and a correct view of God. And so last week we looked at verses 8 through 10, which right after this call to endurance, he tells Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. Remember, Timothy, Jesus Christ. Remember the example that he set. Remember the path of endurance that he walked first. Remember Jesus risen from the dead. Remember Jesus whose word is not bound. Remember Jesus whose salvation is in his name. And this week we're going to look at verses 11 through 13. In this passage, he's going to return to a favorite that Paul liked to use in his writing. He's going to quote a, a, what he would call a trustworthy and faithful saying. And this is most likely what we see in these quotations in verse 11 through 13 was a, a creed the early church would recite or a hymn they would sing. And he's done this. He's, he uses these faithful sayings uh, quite a few times. It's at least the fifth time in First and Second Timothy that he's done this. But in, in, in this sayings, right, these four sayings, we are presented with four different scenarios, and each one teaches us about the character of God. And so I'm going to invite Chris Mathis up today uh, to read today's passage. He's going to be reading Second Timothy uh, chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. And if you're physically capable, would you please stand with Chris to honor the reading of God's word this morning? Morning, buddy. Good morning. So 11 through 13, this is a trustworthy saying. If we die with him, we will also live with him. 
If we endure a hardship, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. Thank you, Chris. You guys can have a seat. As always, keep your Bibles open right there to 2 Timothy. We're going to pick apart each, each one of those four sayings this morning. But to shape our time, I want to, I want to start with a couple uh, verses elsewhere in the Bible. And the first I want to share with you is just out of James 1 that tells us that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, and here's, here's what I want to point out to you, who does not change like shifting shadows. All right, Hebrews 13, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I wanted you to see those verses at the start to, to deepen your appreciation uh, for God's word in general, but also for the passage we're about to study. Because you can know this one. I want you to have confidence that when we read these verses about God's character, about who he is, they are just as true today as the day they were written. Right? Part of, part of uh, why the, uh, the truths in God's word are eternal is because the Bible is revealing to us a God that is eternal and unchanging. And so everything we're going to read about him is timelessly true. Right? This book will never stop being relevant and will never stop being authoritative. And so as we, as we walk through these four questions, what I want us to do is ask the question this morning is, what is this teaching us about God? And the first thing that we can see is that he brings life where there is death. Look again at verse 11. It says, this saying is trustworthy, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. Now, the first two sayings here in this passage are paradoxes, and this, this paradox tells us about both the power and grace of God, because ever since sin entered into creation, death has come with it, because the only thing sin knows how to do is kill. It kills everything it touches, right? And the reason sin is such a major problem is Roman, the Bible tells us in Roman 3 that every single one of us, all of us who, who, have, who, are, who are alive today, everyone who's ever been alive outside of Jesus Christ, we're all sinners who fall short of God's standard. And since sin kills, Romans 6 tells us that the wages, the cost of, those, of that sin is death. And so it's an unavoidable, inarguable fact of life on this sin-stained earth that life will end. Everything that we see, everything that we touch, dies and decays, including us. And yet, in that creation, Jesus made this incredible statement. John 11, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. You understand what's happening? That, that is Jesus claiming to have the solution to the greatest problem that we ever face. And he's not saying, I have the solution. He's saying, I am the solution. You're going to die? No worries. I, I am the solution. Believe in me. And even when you die, you're going to be raised to life. Now, now how, does, how does he make such a claim? Because it's one thing just to make the claim. It's another to back it up, Right? So how is this even possible? It's possible because Jesus, it came possible by Jesus actually dying for us. Jesus faced death first. He went to the cross and he took on our punishment that we owe God for the sins that we've done. Those wages that are due for our sins, he took on on. He took on the power of sin. He took on the power of the curse. He took on the power of evil and death. He became all of those things for us on the cross and he defeated them soundly. Not just in the cross, but also on the third day when he rose again, which is why Romans 6 tells us because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Why? Because death no longer rules over him. So Jesus endured death for us first, then rose back to life. And so he's already proven that death has no say, no authority, no power over him. And by the way, there's, there's no one else this has ever been true about, by the way. Only Jesus. And the great news doesn't stop there. He offers that same eternal life to us. If you pan back one verse in Romans 6. It tells us, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. 
Because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. Romans 8. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through the spirit who lives in you. So how do we attain this eternal life that's made available to us in Jesus? It's the same way Jesus did. We find life through death. It's when we die to ourselves, when we die to the idea of, of control, when we die to the idea of being our own God, it's when we die to our own efforts to get to heaven, when we die to trusting in our own goodness, or we die to our cherished sin, and when we die to those things and put our full hope and full identity and full faith in Jesus and in Jesus alone, we are given life. And I read this week that uh, some scholars believe this was a, a creed, a saying that was read aloud by the early church whenever there was a baptism ceremony. And I hope that's true, right? Because it'd be fitting, because the imagery we see in baptism of the visual picture of being literally buried underwater, dead and buried, only to be raised again to newness of life. It's the same thing Paul is calling Timothy to here. Endure to the end, Timothy. Die to self now, and if serving Christ eventually demands your life, give it to him. Because God specializes in bringing life where there's death. And any who die to self will find life in Jesus. The first thing we see about God is that he brings life where there's death. Secondly, he rewards those who endure. Look at verse 12. It just says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. This is another paradox. It's another amazing promise that's also made possible by Jesus doing it first. Okay, if we endure, it says, we will reign with him. And think of what we're told about Jesus and the endurance that he showed. And so the most concise way to do this is quote to you Philippians chapter 2. Uh, that tells us, right, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus and listen to this path of endurance. Who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, I know if you've been in church, you've probably heard Philippians 2 before, but I want you to think hard about the path of endurance that was described there. Jesus Christ being God, right? He, he existed in heaven, in perfection, humbled himself, and took on the likeness of humanity, not coming as an adult, but actually taking on the form and becoming a baby. To grow as we would grow, to feel all our pain, to feel all our temptation, to feel all our struggles. And if that wasn't enough, he exposed himself to our rejection and ridicule. He was faithful to what God called him to do. He was faithful to what God called him to teach and to share. And he was faithful to what God called him to spit, to pour out in his life. And that faithfulness led him all the way to a cross where he was stripped and beaten and whipped and nailed and ultimately crucified because the death on a cross was the most brutal, excruciating, shameful death the Romans could conceive of. And Jesus Christ endured all of that, being God, the entire time having the power to stop any of it. He could have ejected at any moment, and he didn't. And because of that endurance, look what we're told next. Philippians 2 continues, For this reason... God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that is where the church should say amen. Jesus Christ reigns. He reigns now and he will reign forever, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father because he endured. 
And the promise that we have here is that if we endure with him, we will reign with him. You know what that's telling us? It's telling us that it's only for a little while that we have to endure. The sufferings and costs and hardships of this brief life are nothing compared to reigning with Jesus for all eternity. And so to Timothy, to any of us, we say stay at it. We stay faithful and obedient to Christ. We suffer well. We praise him in the storm. We, we use our hardest times to bring him glory and then help others who are going through something similar. Why? Because at the end of that rope, the end of that endurance is, is grace and a prize. That the same Jesus who endured for us will take us home to be co-heirs with him. He's a God who brings life where there is death. He is a God who rewards those who endure, and he is not a God of coercion. Look at verse 12. It says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Now, coercion simply means that to getting someone to do something by force or by threat. Right? So coercion does not involve the other person's will. It doesn't even involve a, a joyful surrender to something that you wouldn't have chose yourself. So one good example of this is, if, do you remember when ISIS was a big deal in the Middle East and they were going through Iraq and Syria and taking over different towns? When they would go into different towns and take over it, they would tell everyone there, you have two options. You can either convert to Islam or you can be arrested or killed. Right? That's coercion, right? They got a lot of converts, right? They made someone to claim belief. They made someone do what they want. Right? And this, this is the one of the three sayings that we could really get uh, deep, deep into some theological weeds this morning. Uh, because reading multiple, I try to read multiple different uh, um, sort of commentaries based off of, and I choose ones from different theological backgrounds, and they all would just wildly differed with, with how far you could take this saying. Right? And it's all based off their theological presuppositions. So it's, it's what they had in mind at the start. And I'm not opposed to talking about those things in smaller circles where it'd be beneficial. Right, but in a setting like this, here, here's, what, here's the commitment I want to make to you today. I don't want to talk you into my theological preferences. Right? I just want you to see the character of God. And so in Matthew 10, Jesus picks up on this and he says this. Therefore, everyone who acknowledged me before others, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others... I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. So as we, as we think about this, here, here's, here's a couple of things that we need to be clear on. Right? The blood of Jesus Christ on the cross is sufficient to forgive the sins of any who would believe in his name. Any. There's no limit. It's sufficient not only to forgive the sins of any who has ever lived in this world, but in infinity worlds, because there is no limit to the grace of God or the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice. But with that being true, the Bible is also crystal clear that not everyone is going to live with Christ forever. Not everyone will reign with Christ. Not everyone is going to heaven. In fact, you can argue that the Bible seems to indicate the majority won't. And this is not something to be smug about. This is not something to be trite about. This is not something to joke about. It's heartbreaking. It is absolutely devastating that God made a way for everyone to be saved, but not everyone will. And it would be incredibly irresponsible to teach that everyone will because it would give people false hope that will fail them in the end. But you see, whether you believe that everybody who's in Jesus Christ made a conscious decision of their own will or, the effectual, or you believe that the effectual drawing power of God made his grace irresistible to them or you think both are at play and you're like me and you're right. right? I'm sorry, I told you I wasn't gonna try to convince you, right? Whatever you fall on that, what the Bible is clear on is this. 
there will be no one in heaven who did not want to be there. There'll be no one in heaven who did not want to be there because heaven is where God is. And heaven is where Jesus reigns unchecked. And everyone who will be there will be there in free and joyful submission to the reign of the Lord. And God, in his power and might and grace, made every move towards us. He created us, he designed us, he shaped us, he formed us in his image, he pursued us and became one of us, he felt all our pain, he unleashed all his his anger and wrath for our sin on his perfect, holy, sinless, wonderful son, and he brutally killed him on the cross to pay our debt. Jesus then rose from the dead to offer us life forever, and then God places us in his sovereignty when and where we would live and uses his word and his spirit and his people and life events to constantly, consistently call us to himself and reach out to us and show us our need for a savior. And if after all that we still deny, if after all that we still reject him and still push him away, he's going to give us what we want. He'll give us what we want. And it would be the most foolish, heartbreaking thing anyone could ever do. But you need to know there's nothing more that God could ever do to show to us his goodness. There's nothing more God could ever do to prove to us his worth. There's nothing more he could ever do to reveal our need for him. And after all that, you still deny him, he will return the favor. He's a God who brings life where there's death. He's a God who rewards those who endure. He's not a God of coercion. And he's faithful and unchanging. Look at verse 13. It says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This, this to me, is the most fascinating of the four, and honestly, the most freeing. Because we need to understand, right, if you have a wrong understanding of the previous saying, the one that says, if we deny him, he will deny us, then based off your definition or understanding, you you could easily argue that we all deny Christ at different points, that whenever we choose to disobey or whenever we still sin or whenever we don't live up to a standard in his word, we flake out an opportunity to share or more. And if God is the type of God who will deny me every time I fail, right, then I will live in a constant pattern of, of, of fear of the rejection of God. But that is why we must read, we must interpret scripture with the rest of scripture in mind. Because we can know this one with absolute certainty. That's not what God is like. I mean, think of, think of the apostles, right? Peter denied, literally denied Christ three times. And Jesus restored Peter and used him as the rock upon which he built the church. Every one of the disciples abandoned and fled at the cross, and they became apostles of the early church. And listen to this verse that we're told in 1 John. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous. I want to look at that a little bit more. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I mean, think about, think about that amazing promise that as children of God, as followers of Jesus, even when we still sin, that God forgives us and cleanses us totally when we confess, right? Because the blood of Jesus is sufficient to forgive all my sins, past, present, and future. Why? Because the work is done and complete in Jesus. It's finished. But I want you to look again at that verse, and especially this part. If we confess our sins, that he's faithful, right? He's faithful. And the question I want you to ask this morning is he's faithful to what? When God is, forgives us for our sins, who is he being faithful to? He's not being faithful to us and forgiving us. He's being faithful to himself. He's saying, no, no, I, I, I bought this person as my child. 
with my blood and my sacrifice. I gave my word that I would save and redeem and forgive them. And God cannot deny himself. He cannot go back on his word. Paul is reminding Timothy, Timothy, even when we stumble, even when we sin or falter or give in to fear instead of faith, even, as we, even when we aren't as bold as we should be, Timothy, or we don't hold the line like we should, our eternal standing with God does not ride on my efforts or my goodness because God didn't save me by my efforts or my goodness. He saved me by his power and his might and his will and his word and his grace. And so he will sustain me and sustain my salvation by his power and his might and his will and his word and his grace. Because he cannot deny himself. He can't. Just so we're clear, we are easily the beneficiaries of this. This is grace to us. But when this is viewed rightly, it's not used as a license to keep on sinning and do whatever you want because God will always forgive you. When this is viewed rightly, this boundless grace and unchanging faithfulness of God should spur us on to more faithfulness to him. Should spur us on to deeper levels of righteousness and imitation to him because we know how good he's been to us. So what can we learn about God? He's a God who brings life where there is death. He's a God who rewards those who endure for him. He's not a God of coercion, and he's faithful and unchanging. And so how do we respond to such a God as this? I think we, we look to the positives in these sayings, right? First, we die to self. This is going to sound simple, but it's, it's impactful. The difference between us and God is that he's God and we're not. And I know that seems really basic to you, but it, we watch, you can watch this play out, this confusion play out for people, right? The difference between us and God is that he's God and we're not, and so it's guaranteed. It's not kind of guaranteed. It's guaranteed that there are going to be aspects of God's nature, there's aspects of who he is or what he does that we don't like at first because we're not him. And I hear this from people all the time. Well, I just don't understand why. If, if God is so good, then fill in the blank. I don't understand why, if, if God is real, then why this would happen. I don't understand why, if God is real, then that he would say this. Well, God's goal is not to make every aspect of his divine nature palatable and agreeable to you. That would be an impossible goal because we're all different. We have different standards and ideals. And so God's not running around trying to make himself palatable and agreeable to you. His goal is to show you who he is and how we should respond to him. And the problem arises when we use these aspects of God that we don't quite understand at first as reasons to avoid or reject or deny him. Right? Part of the idea of dying to self is putting, the, putting to death the notion that God owes you an explanation for anything. He doesn't. It's putting to death the notion that God has to fit your image of who God should be. He's God and you're not. We don't get to call those shots. The joyous secret is this, that those who do die to self, those who just surrender to his sovereignty and authority, find him to be increasingly good and wonderful and gracious and loving all the more. And he's, he's made a way for you to know him. He's made a way for you to have life eternal. He's made a way for you to have life more abundantly here. He's made a way for you to find purpose. He's made a way for you to join him in his mission. He's made a way for you to have your life count for far more than if you just live for yourself. And so whatever way it is that you're resisting him today, whatever, way you're, whatever it is that you're holding back from him, whether it's believing in him for the first time for salvation or giving him control of a relationship that you know is outside his boundaries or confessing a sin that you cherish too much 
or an area of life that, that you're just not living in obedience to him or something that you know he's asked you to do that you have not said yes to, and whether you know he's not Lord of your wallet or he's not Lord of your calendar or you've given things that are lesser than him, higher priority than him, whatever it is, die to self and lay that thing down. And I'm not gonna lie to you, it's gonna hurt. You've already given too much of your heart to it. But what you will find is something far better. You'll find that he always brings life where there's death. And so die to whatever is keeping you from more of God. Rid that thing aggressively from your life. Secondly, endure. This has been, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because this has been the call of the entire chapter. It's every verse, endure, 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 endure. And so mom and dad, stay at it. Get into the fight for your kids' hearts. Students, walk the walk, right? Be the light for Jesus in your hallways and your campuses. Don't be afraid to be different. Workers, do work that makes your company better. It makes your boss's lives easier. Take the burdens off your coworkers. Just be, be beneficial to other people. Do acts of mercy. Help alleviate suffering in others when you can. Serve the church that God has given you. Show people that you love, about, love them. Show people that you care about them. Let, it, let us all endure in living in ways that will give us opportunities to share the hope we have and pray for those opportunities to come. And when they come, share the hope you have in Jesus. But mainly just stay at it because the reward is coming and it's going to be worth it, I promise you. And then lastly, we should respond by simply praising God for his unchanging faithfulness. I mean, you know, one, one of the worst postures a Christian can take with God is to act like he's getting a pretty good deal out of me. To think, yeah, God is super gracious to all those other people, but with me, I'm doing all right for him. The second you're there, you're useless for God. You become completely useless for him. If you want to be used by God, if you want to keep drawing closer to God, you want to keep being connected to him, fight to remember that every good thing about you is due to his grace in your life. I'm a child of God. I have been saved and redeemed. I have been reconciled to him, not because of a single thing that I've ever done. It's all because of the work of Jesus Christ. I have life and breath in my lungs. I have a family. I have a roof over my head. I have, a f I have food on my table. I have clothes on my back. I have skills and talents. I mean, I think I'll find one one day, right? I have training. I have experiences, resources, and provisions. Again, not because of anything that I've ever done but all because of the grace of God poured out on me. And I have a future where I will live and reign with Jesus for all eternity and no one's ever gonna be able to snatch me out of my father's hand and this is not because of my faithfulness. It's all because of the faithful, unchanging, unending grace of God to me. And this is the point of gatherings like this. This is the point of quiet times and getting the word. This is the point of corporate worship and individual worship. This is the point, part of the point of prayer and singing and talking about his grace to remind ourselves again and again and to praise him for his never-ending, always-enduring, unchanging faithfulness. What you believe about God is the most important thing about you. What you believe about God shapes how you respond to him. But guess what? He's not left himself a mystery. He's revealed himself fully to us in his word. And so how is it that the God who brings life where there is death, how is it that the God who rewards those who endure, who is not a God of coercion, who is faithful and unchanging, how is it he's asking you to respond today? 
I want you, I'm challenging you, ask him right where you're sitting, where, where is it that he wants you to die to self? Where is it that you just need to endure? You've been feeling the temptation to bail. It's getting too hard, and you just need to endure. Or how is it that you can just take time today to praise him for his faithfulness to you and stop giving yourself credit? Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for the gift of your word that you knew how important it was that we knew who you were. And you decided you were not going to leave that a mystery. That you're going to reveal yourself to us through your timeless, eternal, unchanging word. Painting for us the picture of who you are and how we should respond. And so, Lord, I ask as we prepare now uh, to close out this service by having an opportunity to, to literally praise you in song for your faithfulness. Lord, as we, as we prepare ourselves for that moment, would you right now, would your spirit move around this room and begin pointing out very specific areas in our lives in which we need to die to self? Places that we have been holding back from you, places that we have not been surrendering to your authority, to your goodness, to your word. Places where you've been asking for a yes and we've been telling you no. And God, may, may we have the wisdom, may we have the humility to lay that thing down at the foot of the cross this morning and trust that no matter how painful it will be, you're gonna bring life there. When we die to self, you will bring life. God, for the ones who are just struggling because they're tired, because they, they've been at it for again and again and again and their, their physical bodies are weak, their emotions are drained, spiritually they feel emptier. Lord, may they hear the call that's been repeated all throughout 2 Timothy to just endure, to just endure, to just endure. Because if we endure with you, we will reign with you. And then last, as we, as we close the service, as we stand this morning, may we not think about other things, may we not think about what we're gonna do next, may we not think about um, any kind of distraction, may our, may our minds be focused on just how good and faithful you are. And may we as a church praise you in accordance and rightly for it. And we ask this all in Jesus' powerful name.